You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. Here's a gal in church and she's trying to do something. She's trying to serve in ministry in some way. And in her ministry, she makes a uh, fairly large and public mistake. And everyone's focused on that. But what about the hours and days and all the work that's been going on for so long behind the scenes where they've been faithful and not too many people saw that so people don't talk about that but we ought to be trying to discover all the good things that people are doing behind the scenes right so we can talk more about that Have you ever made a judgment about someone and then found out that you've been completely wrong? The scripture definitely rings true when it says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Pastor Tom will continue digging through the book of James to find insight as to how we ought to judge properly and the consequences of doing it wrong. If you see a little iceberg floating in the water, you might be in for a big surprise when you collide with the mass below the surface. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 4 as he continues his message. Who are you to judge your brother? Now this short section neatly divides in two parts. First a command, followed by the larger section, which is really the reasons for the command. And we'll just use those two sections to generate some questions and just make it two questions from this. The first would be for us to work on defining what sinful judging is so we can separate that from proper evaluation and biblical discernment. So we'll just call it this. What is sinful judging? And that's probably all we're going to have time for today. What is sinful judging? And then we'll move on to why is this kind of judging wrong? It's going to take us a little bit of time because I want to go to other passages of Scripture, travel there, and see what they have to say as well. So let's tackle this question. What is sinful judging? Look again at the beginning of verse 11 where it says, do not speak against one another, brethren, and then add in, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. Notice how they're linked. And also notice that we're talking about the brethren. James is concerned how we think and speak, how we think about and speak to one another in the body of Christ. What we say about one another in the body of Christ. Since we're brethren, we should be treating each other that way, like like a family. That's the undergirding truth here. We're really bound to one another. We're a family of God. You know, you don't choose your family, right? You You don't really choose your family. You're born and boom, they're your family. And in the body of Christ, you may think that you decided to follow Jesus, but God caused you to be born again. And then you don't really have any control over whoever else gets born again. And they're born again, boom, they're there. And then you gather in a church, and that's kind of all designed by God. So he wants us to get along, and one of the best ways to control that is how we talk about one another and to one another and control these these conflicts. We're not enemies. We're brethren. We do disagree. We have different ways of approaching things. Some things we like about each other, some things we do not like about each other. And we can get past all of that, I think. And we can, um, through love, learn to, to work on all those things. So speaking against a brother in church and judging a brother in church is wrong. And it does deserve correction, so James is doing that. Why does it deserve correction? Well, it's not loving. It hurts the unity of the church. It causes more conflicts. It flows out of quarrels and conflicts. We're going to have quarrels and conflicts. We have to control those. Furthermore, please notice that speaking against a brother is tantamount to making a judgment. Speaking against another inherently involves some kind of a condemnation. 
And that's the connection there. If I'm going to take time to evaluate something and then speak against it, that's because I've made a judgment already in my mind. And that's why they're coupled here by James. The one speaking against the brother made a judgment and found the person wanting in some way. Maybe the judgment is so severe that he thinks this person really ought to be ostracized by the Christian community and sent out. And some groups can, can do that. They can start saying, you know, we're going to get rid of this person and get rid of that person. This person's not a Christian. This person's not a Christian. Look at how they live. And it can actually result to talking them out of the community of believers. It can get severe, in other words. Now, James does not explain exactly what he means here again. So the meaning has to be derived from the words themselves, from the context, and then to go out to some correlation in the rest of Scripture to guide us. So let's start with the word itself term that's translated by the NASB, which I preach from, speak against, is kata laleo. It's a compound word. It has a prefix kata, which either means down, from, or against. Here it would mean against. And then a very common verb to speak, laleo. So it literally means to speak against. So that's a pretty good translation, to speak against. Yet, interestingly, you turn in the NASB and you go to other places where Kataleleo is used, such as 1 Peter 2, 12, and it's not translated that way. It's translated a little bit more narrowly. There it says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you, that's the same word, as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Also, 1 Peter 3, 16, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are Here it is, slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Good advice. But the NASB chose to translate here, speak against, and there, slandered. King James here also has, speak not evil of one another. If you have the ESV, it says not to speak evil. The Holman says don't criticize. The NIV says don't slander. So there's a little bit of difference in those terms. The corresponding adjective to this term in Romans chapter 1, verse 30 is translated slanderers. Some have backbiters. Now, to speak against somebody obviously would include slander, the defamation of someone's character. But speaking against somebody is really broader than slander. Slander is a form of deceit. Slander involves false charges against somebody, falsely tearing down their reputation, defaming them. It says a brother is worthy of rejection, but that reasoning is based on a lie. Speaking against a brother would include that, but it would also include any form of speech aimed against a brother, which would also include things that are true, yet unnecessarily harsh or critical. It would include critical speech, which does not help, does not build up, does not express love. It would also include a challenge to someone in authority, like a pastor or a deacon or someone like that. Um, In in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 8, God asks those that spoke against Moses, why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So there's a speaking against the authority there as well. It would also, I think, include prejudicial comments. It would include unwarranted conclusions against the person, that is. Too harsh of a criticism. It doesn't exclude all criticism, but too harsh of criticism. 
spreading around accusations which might be true but haven't even been confirmed yet, or casting aspersions on someone's character, denigrating their motives, having judgmental attitudes. Galatians 5.5 warns when Christians get too critical of each other, warns about biting and devouring one another. That's quite an image, isn't it? And that can be done with words. See, it is commonly accepted that you can convey negative information about others if that information is true, right? I mean, that's kind of more accepted. Most people think, well, it's true when someone says, why are you saying that? Because it's true, but this seems to even forbid that if the intent and the outcome is not good. It's wrong to pass on damaging information even if it's true. Why is it being passed on is the point. Why is it being passed on if it's not meant to help. There are situations where the information can be passed on to help, but if it's not meant to help, you're not part of the solution. If it doesn't really build up, if it doesn't solve a problem, what is it being spread about for? We think that we can righteously diminish others, just not lie about them, but love doesn't do that. Love doesn't take a real weakness of someone else and just keep broadcasting it, right? We all have weaknesses. We all have areas we're growing in. We all have areas where we're not sanctified. Otherwise, we'd already be like Jesus. But we want to be pulling for people, not pulling people down. Sometimes we also think it's okay to speak against a brother if it's done face-to-face, if it's true. But this also seems to forbid criticism, which is done face-to-face, again, if it tears down, if it's too biting. James includes critical speech, which is not designed to build up. I like the expositor's commentary's comment here. It is to root out the harsh, unkind, critical spirit that continually finds fault with others. There are people who are, they're mature people, they're confident people, they've been taught the Bible a lot in church, but they tend to think that it's their job to point out what is wrong with everybody in church. And that is not so helpful. Or to point out what's going wrong here and there. And invariably, what comes out of their mouth is criticism, not edifying speech. Their motives might be good, but the constant criticism doesn't really help. We all know if you've been around someone under a boss or something like that who was uh, very demanding and very critical, we all know that it gets harder and harder and harder to work for someone like that. Wouldn't you agree? that at first you're trying hard because uh, he's spotted, he or she has spotted some things you're doing in your work that are not all that great, and so you kind of agree with them, and you, you get busy, and you work a little harder, and you try to find those things that you're not doing all that well, and sometimes by someone being, you know, really demanding, that helps us to improve at something. But then when you improve, and it's just more criticism, and you improve, and it's just more criticism, there comes an end to that where you realize this person doesn't know how to encourage. And this person is not really a lot of fun to work under. And actually, the work effort can begin to slump after that as well. So we know it's important to build up and it's important to be encouraging. We don't want to diminish others. I think this, in a negative sense, is akin to the positive instruction we get in other places like Ephesians 4.29 that says, let no unwholesome, that would be a dirty kind of a word, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification. You know what that is, building up, right? According to the need of the moment. So you see someone who's frustrated. 
You don't necessarily criticize their frustration. You try to get behind their frustration and figure out what can I say that will help them and maybe ease the frustration. Then later when they're not so frustrated, talk to them a little bit about how in the Lord they can learn to be less frustrated and less angry with things. Does that make sense? Or Colossians 4, 6. This is talking about outsiders, but let your speech always be with grace. Always be with grace. That's hard to do with outsiders. They get up and they say the, just the darndest things. And you, don't, you, don't, you can't think of anything to say, so that's when you're supposed to stay quiet, right? But if you can think of something to say, it's going to come out with grace. Well, that's not exactly how I would put it. I would put it this way, and you try to rein in your tongue, as we were told in James 3, and say it with grace. Seasoned as with salt, to continue the quote, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Romans 14 again. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So James, I think, is correcting here not just slander, but the kind of speech which tears down, which moves against a brother in some way. He's letting us know that fault-finding is not on the list of spiritual gifts. But encouragement, exhortation is. Did you know that? One of the gifts the Holy Spirit gives is not fault-finding. It is exhortation. We do get, as a spiritual gift, though, discernment. We are not to run down another brother. That can be done in a lot of different ways, and it's difficult to... um, try to think through all the ways in which we creatively do that to other people. Even if the information is true, we start the conversation with, wow, did you hear about so-and-so who did such-and-such? Where are we going with that? What's the point of that? Even if it's true, it becomes unnecessary gossip, you see. Any speech against the character of a brother which is either not true or is true and judges too much and tears down, purposefully embarrasses, uses it to discourage it, uses to promote ourselves over somebody else, is speaking against a brother. And it usually involves wrongful judging. Sometimes this kind of unedifying speech is mindless criticism. You don't even know you're doing it. You're just yakking, you're talking. And if you were to record it and you were to, you know, this was the conversation I had on Wednesday with so-and-so and and you record it, you don't think that you said anything bad about anybody, but if you were to have it recorded and listen to it, you realize, wow, three times in the conversation I said something negative about someone and there was no purpose for it at all. R. Kent Hughes uh, writes, sometimes this talking down of others simply comes from too much empty talk. People don't have much to talk about, so they fuel the fires of conversation with the flesh of others. Other times, the talk about another person has truth, but it's too critical because it does not give the brother the benefit of the doubt. He did something wrong, and then we project from the wrong that he did really bad motives, which we we really can't judge that. We know that what he did was wrong, and we know that's not what the Lord's will was, but we can't necessarily say that he was planning this for a long period of time and his motives were really bad. We have to be very careful with that judgment. Other times the talk is true, but mostly seems mostly to focus on someone's shortcomings. In other words, here's a gal in church, and she's trying to do something. She's trying to serve in ministry in some way. And in her ministry, she makes a uh, fairly large and public mistake, and everyone's focused on that. But what about the hours and days and all the work that's been going on for so long behind the scenes where they've been faithful and not too many people saw that, and so people don't 
talk about that, but we ought to be trying to discover all the good things that people are doing behind the scenes, right? So we can talk more about that. And then, by the way, if you are someone who does catch people doing good things and you do care about it and you do encourage them, then when it's your turn to give an honest correction to someone, a constructive criticism as it's called, they're much more likely to listen to you then, right? Because you've been catching them in the good things that they've been doing and you've been noticing the good things that they're doing. I mean, that's just, that's just love. What happens if a prominent woman in the church loses her temper, which obviously that's wrong? Does it mean that she's characterized by that? Do we go home and say, so-and-so's got a real problem with anger? Or do we realize it might have been a bad day? This might have been like the straw that broke the camel's back on a lot of things that happened to this poor gal, and she's not usually characterized that way. See, that's a much better kind of a judgment. Wouldn't you agree? What happened if, if a man lusts at a sensual picture? That's wrong, right? But is that the characteristic of his life? Some people start talking about others like, well, if he was caught once or twice, that must mean that's characteristic of his life. It may mean that. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Okay, parents, here's one for you. The child disobeys, and you level him. But truth be told, kid's had a pretty good week. He's been trying all week long to do what's right, and you didn't notice too much. Maybe your week was busy. Maybe you didn't want to notice, but... Then on Friday after a good Monday to Thursday, steps out of line and you wallop them. And parents sometimes can be like that as well. And vice versa, children can do that to parents. See, speaking against others means we don't put their actions in a proper context of life. People do that with our words, right? Someone will come up and say, you said such and such. Nah, man, that's quoting me out of context. Well, we do that. We also take our actions out of context. We see someone doing something and we put it into a preconceived context and it often is a more negative context and we think those thoughts about others. Maybe it's because we don't want to be naive, we don't want to be burned by someone, so we tend to think more negatively to make sure that we catch them when that happens. But often it's just not necessary and we're not assuming the best of our brethren. See, this is a little bit less like preaching today and a little bit more like a talk, isn't it? We're just having a conversation about these things. I know, I'm doing all the talking. So it really is preaching. But it's just talking through how does this actually work in life. Sometimes the critic elevates something that's small and makes it become much bigger than it is. Again, it's wrong and his information is correct, but it's just making what we say a mountain out of a what? A molehill, right? Part of the problem is this. It's generated by, by the Bible. And I don't mean to blame the Bible on it, but how we use the Bible. We'll go to the Bible and we'll be reading or we'll hear a sermon and we'll come to a conclusion the Bible teaches something about morality. And now, now that's in us and we believe that. And that's part of what we hold as a conviction. And then we bump into somebody and we, want, and we see them do something and we think our first thought is, ah, they're doing what the Bible says not to do. And the problem isn't with our understanding of the Bible. The problem's not with our interpretation of the Bible. We got that right. Our problem is with how we apply the Bible in correction to someone else. Does that make sense? So if that other person really does match what the Bible's talking about, then that would be an appropriate correction from the Word of God for them. But if we jump the gun, and that's only part of the issue and not the main issue, and there's another issue going on that another part of the Bible talks to, we would need to have a little bit more wisdom to put that together and talk to the person about what they really do need to hear and not bang, bang on the 
maybe that's 10% of the problem and we blow that out of proportion. So again, we can have a desire to be biblical and study it right and gain a conviction right, but not be slow enough in our observations about the person to apply it right. I know I've done that. We have to put it this way. We have to do more than interpret the Bible correctly. We have to apply the Bible correctly. And not just in our own lives, we have to apply it to other people's lives as well. Sometimes counseling can be a lot trickier and more difficult and involved than preaching. I can stand up here and one of you come up later and say, man, you were speaking to me. You know, did you know about such and such? You know, I can't believe you were saying that directly to me. I'm not. I'm saying it to all y'all, you know. I don't know if the shoe fits. If the shoe fits, wear it, you know. The shoe often fits my foot and I have to wear it. But in counseling, it's one-on-one, and you better know the the heart that you're dealing with when you're talking with them. Otherwise, they're going to go, ah, this person hasn't listened to me, and, you know, I'm not, they're just critical and all of that. Someone might see, here's another thing, someone might see another person who's discouraged and down and say, you know, the Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. That's true. That's exactly true. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's really emphasized in Scripture, but the Scripture also allows for legitimate mourning. There's a time for mourning as well, right? And so you don't necessarily, you know, someone come up over, you know, I see you're down. I just wanted to give you this verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. You, know, you want to grab them by the, pull them down and say, don't, don't give me your advice. I didn't ask for it, you know. The Bible also says some things rather strongly. And so we think that we can go up to someone and say it just as strongly as the Bible does. The Bible has a lot of love in it. (laughs) The Bible has a lot of gentleness in it, too. The Bible has a lot of explanation of it. And if you don't carry that with you and the same love along with that truth, then you're going to convey the truth part of it, but not have all the rest the Bible has behind it, the gentleness and kindness of God, His long-suffering with us. And have you been patient with that person at all? And so, again, we think we're being biblical, but we're misusing the Bible in how we talk to others. The Bible instructs us not just what we should say, but how to say it. We're supposed to speak the truth in love. You know it, and I know it. It's just hard to do. That means we need to change our tone. Now, if you've been married for a while like I have, you know that you can pick up on things right away, you know. One spouse says a little something. Even the tone's just slightly off, and then the other one says, what do you mean by that? What do you mean, what do I mean? Well, you had that tone. No, I didn't. Oh, yes, you did. I know. I've been around here 33 years. I know. So we we know that. So tone is, is really important, isn't it, when we go to talk to somebody? Does it sound understanding or does it sound like we're just getting around to the point where I'm going to level the guns and I'm trying to look like I'm being really gentle, but I'm not really? And by the way, people know that. And they figure that out. That's why a lot of corrections don't work too well is because we're going into the conversation in our mind is like, how am I going to correct this person? I got to correct this person. I got I to gotta do it. I've got to correct them. Instead of, I need to love this person, understand them, and then after I understand everything, I need to give the proper encouragement and correction that's there. And there's a huge difference in all of that, isn't there? So the Bible warns about strong truth not spoken in love and empathy as well. Like Jesus with the adulterous woman. He did both. Neither do I condemn you, he said. Now, he's just dismissed the whole crowd. Do you remember the story? They've all picked up stones. They've dragged her embarrassingly in front of Christ. The law says to stone a woman to death. What do you say, Jesus? He's put on the spot. He draws on the ground. Who knows what he drew? And then he says, okay, you who are without sin cast the first stone. 
And of course, people drop their stones. They walk away. She says, woman, where are your condemners? And she says that they're gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he said what? Go and sin no more. What you did was a sin. It was wrong. He didn't elaborate on it. I can't believe you're so unfaithful to your husband. Do you not understand how terrible this is? He didn't drag her through the mud, but he did uphold the standard of God. Because the standard of God not only honors God, it helps the woman and helps the man as well. The well-known idiom of don't judge a book by its cover is so common that we often lose sight of its intent. The truth is, as Pastor Thomas pointed out, that we make judgments far too quickly with far too little information and we end up with less than optimal results. God is the best and really the only fair judge. And if we lean on Him for His understanding when we deal with others, we'll have a much better outcome. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leek, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit hopebible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. Next time, Pastor Tom will continue in James chapter 4. He will give us more insight into how we can get off track in our day-to-day interactions with others, and he'll also help us to know how we can walk rightly on a good and godly path. Until then, we can prayerfully put into practice the truth he's already helped us to see. Let's love our neighbor, treat them how they'd like to be treated, and allow God to be the ruler of our tongue. To listen again to today's message in the book of James, visit HopeBibleChurch.org and look under the Sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's Word. So join us again right here on Discover Hope.